0: Hello, welcome to the Capital Employed podcast. Joining me in conversation for this episode is Ben Claremont from Cove Street Capital. In this episode, Ben gives an overview of his investment process. He also talks about two tech stocks he thinks are being undervalued by the market and have great upside potential. Before we jump into this episode, please make sure to add your email to the Capital Employed email list. We will be publishing some exclusive interviews that will only be available to those on the list. To receive these bonus episodes, please visit CapitalEmployed.fm forward slash exclusive and add your email to the list. Okay, please enjoy my conversation with Ben. Hi Ben, thanks for coming on to the podcast. Who and what is to Capital and what is the investment philosophy?
1: Yeah, John, thanks, thanks so much for having me and letting me talk about myself and my firm so, Coast Street, we're based in Los Angeles, California. We have about 750 million under management. We are long only value investors, uh, kind of a dying breed of small cap concentrated value investors. Um, we do a lot of work on our companies and we concentrate our portfolio. I think in, in, a, in the two main strategies we run. 30 to 39 names in our small cap strategy and the strategy that I co-manage, we have 20 to 29 names. Everyone has a quote unquote unique and distinct process. And so the question is, how do you really differentiate yourself? And so as I can, I'm happy to walk through our process, but it, I think what's more interesting to people is the nuances of our process and the distinctions and, and the way we try to differentiate ourselves when i say we do a lot of work on companies that's what i'm really referring to is of course we're reading financial statements and of course we're reading conference calls and talking to management kind of just a basic blocking and tackling but i think to be a really successful investor especially when you run concentrated and you and you you take large positions in companies you have to find alternative sources of information and you know i i hesitate to, to say the word edge because these are relatively efficient markets, US small cap and mid cap markets are, are ha- at times inefficient. And there are obviously opportunities here and there. But, you know, I think it, it, the humility of being a, a, a conservative investor requires you to say, most of the time, the market's going to be efficient. So you have to figure out something, some angle, some information source, some contrarian perception that other people don't quite, um, you know, can't quite come up with. So we're always doing kind of not what I call non-Wall Street oriented things. I'll give you an example because I think this is actually really, um, you know, pertinent and relevant. So today um, I spent most of my day listening to a defense space slash defense oriented conference. And this had nothing to do with investing. One of our companies, Viasat, was one of the sponsors of this space conference. And on this was really what it was about is how do we defend our assets in space? That's in terms of you know, the physical satellites. Um, h- how do we handle cybersecurity in a world that's more and more connected? And so there were Viasat people discussing these issues with top military personnel. Again, has, this has nothing to do with quote unquote Wall Street. This is one of our companies that you know, ha- happens to be public. It's one of our largest positions. I learned an incredible amount about the opportunities they have by listening in on this presentation. I think that's a good example of the way that we try to differentiate our perceptions, get information that other people might not be looking for. Doing this work is necessary but not sufficient to be successful. I think being successful is a, requires what I would say the art and the science of investing. The, the science is you know, modeling and you know, understanding returns and margins. And then the art is marrying the qualitative and quantitative data that you gather. To make investment decisions, and then dealing with all of the behavioral stuff associated with buying and selling, uh, position sizing, and what happens when positions move against you, and what happens when you've been wrong for three years—all of those behavioral biases that start to kick in—you know, the way I look at investing is that to be successful, no matter where you are and what markets you're in, you know, it's a combination of qualitative, quantitative, and behavioral, and so our process is designed to mitigate behavioral biases to develop an edge through you know access and, and unearthing of alternative sources of information um, we've run concentrated that means we're not going to you know we're, we don't have 100 names we don't need that many new ideas focused on high conviction ideas whereby our three pillars come together business value and people with a large focus on the third on the third one which is the people
0: and what type of business do you like to focus on
1: ideally you'd invest in a business that's getting more valuable every day run by people who understand capital allocation and that trades at a you know relatively large discount to your assessment of intrinsic value so those are our three principles business business value and people and when they all align that would suggest that we'd be investing in a, a you know, a, a large position in that company. How do you figure that out? And, and what, are you, what are you doing to understand, you know, the type of company and the type of businesses you're looking at? We measure all of our companies, everything that we own and everything that we look at on a one to four basis, with a one being what we would call a true Warren Buffett stock and a four being a true Ben Graham stock. And let me just flesh that out a little more. So Ben Graham, for people who are not familiar with the father of value investing, was a balance sheet oriented investor. You know, he was looking for things that were statistically cheap securities, things that were trading at less than their you know, you know, tangible assets. He was almost agnostic to business type. He was more interested in buying something cheap. And the evolution, Warren Buffett started as a, as a Ben Graham investor because he, Ben Graham was his mentor. But, you know, the Buffett's evolution was to realize that you sleep much better and you have the opportunity to compound your capital much more consistently if you invest in better businesses. And so that's kind of the personal um, evolution that I've been on as well. I started off as a Ben Graham oriented investor. I like things that were cheap. Cheap was the only thing that was important to me. And as I've evolved and made any number of mistakes, I, I've, I've come to appreciate the value of paying up a little bit for a better business. And so what do we mean by that? What is a, a, a what we call a one or a true buffet on our on our scale? So it's a business that's getting more valuable every day, and that means that it has a moat around its business, right? There's, there's some kind of barriers to entry, or there are some network effects that benefit the company. That means it has high margins and returns. It means that there is an opportunity to reinvest capital at a high rate. And then you get into management, right? Because the business and management are highly intertwined. You know, what kind of people are running it? Do they they have integrity? Do they understand capital allocation? Do they speak your language? Do they speak in terms of earnings per share? You know, what's going to happen next quarter? Or are they thinking 10 years out and talking about free cash flow? There are a number of qualitative and quantitative metrics that we use to determine the quality of the business. Ideally, we would invest in as many what we call true buffets as you possibly can. In a world where markets have become relatively expensive, I don't think that's particularly controversial. The best businesses in the world trade at you know, very healthy multiples. And in a lot of cases, multiples that are much higher than they have historically, so, you have to be a little more nimble and a little more, or a little less dogmatic in order to, to find opportunities at the current moment. What we've been having success in is companies for which the market is not sure about that Buffett and Graham dividing line, or a company that is perceived to be a Graham, a mediocre business trading at a, at a, at a great price, but in reality, Something about the business has changed, whether that's a capital allocation changed or there's been an inflection point that allows the company to actually be more Buffett-like. And so what we would call a Buffett stock is a good business trading at a fair price. Stocks that are at an inflection point can be good investments because not only will you see the earnings and cash flows play out in, in, in a more positive way than the market is expecting, but you also um, can benefit from a multiple expansion. That's kind of where we've been finding the the most value in the market today.
0: Can we talk about two stocks maybe in your portfolio that you're optimistic is still going to have good returns going forward over the next few years? And what was the thesis behind investing in those companies?
1: So the first one is Viasat. It's a satellite connectivity company. What that means is that instead of getting your broadband from you know Charter or Comcast or or CenturyLink, you know whoever your, your your broadband provider is, there are areas in the country and the world where you know they're just it doesn't make sense to lay expensive fiber or or cable and, and are better served from a connectivity perspective from what are known as high throughput satellites. ViaSat was really the disruptor and the innovator in the high throughput satellite world. We've owned this company, I think, I think, since 2014 or 15. We have a unique lens. Remember, as I was talking about, you want a unique perspective on a company to, so that you can you know, maybe understand things that other, don't, that other people can't. My colleague, Eugene Robin, worked at the company. His father worked there. We have a very close relationship with management. So we just think we have a nuanced understanding of the opportunities and threats that maybe people don't have at first glance. Very simply, people think that ViaSat, who I mentioned, was the disruptor in the satellite, uh, the high throughput satellite world, is being disrupted by companies like SpaceX's Starlink, you know, OneWeb, and then Amazon has their own satellite constellation planned as well. Our contrarian perception is that the total addressable market for real connectivity outside of urban areas, so whether that's rural broadband for to your home, whether that's maritime out in the ocean whether that's in-flight Wi-Fi or whether that's military gaining connectivity in places that's never had true high-speed you know, you know, high connectivity, we think the total addressable market is, is large enough for all the players to compete um, and that we're going to see an absolute renaissance in, a, in connectivity in places that it's never been. And c- companies like Viasat and even SpaceX are going to be providing that. And so people think of Viasat as just someone who's competing for a rural person in Oklahoma who you know, has never had fiber connectivity. When in fact, the real opportunity for Viasat is to be the leading player in in-flight Wi-Fi. What that means is in 24 months, um, when there are two new satellites are, have been launched, Viasat's gonna be providing transatlantic and transpacific connectivity. So that means if you're flying from New York to Tokyo or New York to Amsterdam, you're going to have connectivity on that flight in a way that you never have had before. And so that's one big market for Viasat that they are really uniquely positioned to, to tap. And then, secondly, uh, the military. Uh, the military's never really had fast connectivity in the places where it really matters, you know, think the Middle East and, and Asia. And when Viasat launches its two satellites in late 22, mid to late 22, they're going to, have, they're going to offer connectivity over Asia and over the Middle East and Europe to the military in a way that they've never had real-time connectivity that allows the modern warfighter to have immediate information and intelligence. And so that's that's our contrarian thesis is that, you know, don't worry about rural broadband. That's just if that's an opportunity that that will be fine for Viasat and you know SpaceX and the competitors might do really well there, but really Viasat's going to be a wife in-flight Wi-Fi and uh, and a military company in a few years. And so, you know, given all that, we think the stock is really, really undervalued. You know, my colleague, you know, the stock's in the, in the high 40s, low 50s right now, and, and we think it's worth in the hundreds with very conservative assumptions. You know, it, we, we say that as conservative value investors with a fair amount of trepidation because we don't like to put out these like huge headline price targets. We just think we have a, a, an understanding of this company that other people don't because they haven't taken the time. And it's a little bit complicated. And the type of sell-side analyst who covers this this company is a kind of a normal cable and telecom analyst who doesn't really understand the military side. And so that's one. The other stock I'll talk about is Lumen Technologies. This is a little more simple. So Lumen is formerly known as CenturyLink, um, another connectivity company. Uh, CenturyLink, the the modern CenturyLink is a combination of what's a legacy CenturyLink business with Level3. Which was an enterprise, business-focused connectivity company, and so think broadband connectivity and all the services associated with your business. That's the level three side. And then CenturyLink was dominated by telephones and you know T- the TV bundle and you know slow broadband in rural areas. And so those two companies married, and it was a marriage that never made any sense. The only reason Jeff Story, who's now the CEO of the combined companies, the only reason he sold uh, because he was the CEO of Level Three when CenturyLink bought it. The only reason he sold was because they they offered such an exorbitant price. What we know is that he never really wanted to be involved in the in the post merger company, but it was such a disaster that he was named COO to start, and now he's the CEO. Our sense and our relationship with the company suggests that every day. They are focused on figuring out how to unmarry these assets that should have never been married. Companies actually having an analyst day tomorrow. I don't think that we're gonna hear anything about the separation tomorrow, but I do think over the next six months, you're gonna hear about interesting ways that they're going to highlight the value of their fiber assets. Fiber is a, I mean, I think COVID has shown that having fiber in the ground to be able to provide really fast connectivity to both business and consumers, it's a piece of infrastructure that we cannot live without. We're on Zoom calls all day. Kids are on Zoom calls right now for school. People are consuming an enormous amount of bandwidth when it comes to video and video games. Businesses, if all of your applications are in the cloud, you need connectivity. Fiber is becoming an infrastructure asset that people are paying very high multiples for. We think that there's industrial logic for cons- consolidation of the legacy central link business. That's the, the small business and consumer broadband business. And then there are really, really attractive multiples being paid for world-class fiber assets like uh, the level three side has. We think that there's a capital allocation change and a, maybe a, some kind of split or spin or sale, some kind of... Um, some kind of transaction that, high, that separates these two businesses and highlights the, the value of the individual assets. So, and, and I'll close just with, with two points on that. You know, the company put out a, a slide in, in June of 2020 saying that if are just putting very, you know, very conservative multiple on the CenturyLink side and a, a little more aggressive multiple on the, on the level three side, on the business side, it was giving you a stock price of 24 to 35. And the stock is 13.50 today. And that was a company's evaluation. We think the numbers could be higher, but those were conservative estimates. And, uh, and the last thing I'll say about this is um, when we did a podcast on, on Lumen, as I mentioned, and when CEO uh, Jeff Story listened to our podcast, his response was, these guys get it. You know, Vice, that's insanely undervalued in our view, but Lumen is, is just, I've never seen a company in my career that is more set up for some kind of structural change. I believe, given our understanding, we were level three shareholders, so we knew Jeff Story. Given what we know of him and what he said, you know, in public and, you know, what I've in his reaction to our podcast, all of that is suggestive to us that they're going to find a way to do it. And if they do find a way to separate the assets, we think the sum of the parts value is much, much higher than the current stock price.
0: What was the ticker for that one? Was that LUMN?
1: MN. Yeah, LUMN. Lumen Technologies.
0: Okay, that's great. Yeah, thanks, Ben, for sharing those two companies. Where can listeners go to find out more information about uh, you and Cove Street Capital?
1: Yeah, as I mentioned, CoastStreetCapital.com. Uh, I think if if there's anything that we are is we, we're comfortable sharing. We're not a, an opaque hedge fund. We're a long only fund. You can see our holdings every quarter. We talk about our ideas. I think people always know what we're thinking because we're pretty out there. And so if you go to our website and you go to our thoughts tab you will see numerous interviews and commentary from us. So I think that's a good place to go. I'm pretty uh, active uh, on Twitter. My, 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 my Twitter name is The Inoculated Investor. Um, if you're wondering what that is, it was the investment blog that I started back in 2009. Um, it's no longer active, but um, I built up a brand um, being known as The Inoculated Investor. So you can follow me uh, on Twitter, inoculated invests i n b e s you know, we're we're pretty out there, honestly. You know, there's a lot of, I really like the podcast medium, as I mentioned. So there's a number of interviews with us, um, whether it's talking about an individual idea or our process. And, you know, we're always happy to engage and interface with people who have questions or or are interested in, in our strategies.
0: Thanks so much for coming on to the show. It's been a pleasure to listen to you.
1: Yeah, it's been great. Nice chatting with you. Maybe we can do it again sometime.